Supply shock versus inflation. Who cares, right? That's what everybody says. Consumer prices go up. What does it matter? Why or, or anything else? Inflation versus quote unquote inflation. Well, it matters because first of all, why, where does it come from? How does it start? What is really wrong in the, in the system that is creating such an imbalance? We want to know that because like if you have the, like the difference between, say, having cancer or heart disease, you treat it very differently. And maybe the outcomes are very different, too. And that's really where we are here now, talking about a supply shock versus inflation. How is this thing going to end or where are we going to end up moving forward? Because we've been in this for about you know, almost three years now, two and a half years now, and we're at that stage where if this is a supply shock, it's reaching its terminal phase, which means one thing. And if this is inflation, it certainly means something very different. Now, I want to show you all a chart, including Mr. Van Meter, a chart that I put together for a Macro Voices appearance I just did with Eric Townsend, which is always fun to do. Check out Eric Townsend's channel if you want to see that interview. I'll put a link in the description below. But what the chart shows you is that there isn't really much, uh, there isn't much doubt here. We look at just the consumer price index and we use the CPI because it goes way, way back. So we have lots of data. It's consistent data. It's a single series. And what we see is that supply shock cases like 1946, 47 and 48 or 1950 and 51, they look a lot like the CPI we're seeing right now. The year over year changes, you see, you see it roar out of the gate because it's called a shock for a reason. We have a shock that unleashes this imbalance in the economy. And then contrary to popular perception, I think, it's not as if consumer prices just go right back down in as, as fast as they went up. Instead, as you can see on the chart, it takes a considerable amount of time for transitory to be revealed as transitory. And in fact, if you look at these charts, what you see is that the current case is right on schedule with the previous supply shock cases as we move into months, I think, 31 and 32. We're getting to the point where we should start to see not just disinflation, but also the beginning of what comes next. And that's what we really want to talk about today is it looks like a supply shock. It talks like a supply shock. It's a CPI like a supply shock. It's nothing like the great inflation. But what does that ultimately mean? Moving forward, Steve, Steve Van Meter, we have the supply shock case. We've been talking about it for a very long time. We're going to set aside the great inflation for now because, you know, there's any number of reasons to dismiss that theory, including the fact we don't have the money printing to sustain it. But just looking at the CPI chart, you can see, you know, it's like the old Sesame Street song. One of these things is not like the others. Uh, it's clearly which one of those is not like the others. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And I think this is, you know, something people saw in real time during the pandemic. They went to the stores. They saw the shelves were empty. I mean, it was hilarious. You go to the grocery store looking for whatever few items were left. And there were people buying things like lion beans. They don't even buy that stuff. They don't eat it. But it's like, hey, there's two left. And I need something just in case. And they were, they were just grabbing the most obscure things and loading, I mean, just shoving in their cart. And, and so what happens, of course, we had this entire set of skilled workforce leave because the stock market started going back up and everyone said, you know what, I don't want to, I want to retire anyways. I don't want to do this. So it wasn't like we had, you know, we turned the lights off off the factory, sent everyone home and then bought the same people back and said, all right, go back to work. They took so much time off. We lost skilled people. We had to bring in new people and we're just starting to see that in the productivity report. 
I know you and I love that report. I know a lot of other people never even look at labor force productivity, but we're finally starting to see this new workforce is getting in the groove of doing their job. And it just tells us inflation is a process as it comes down. It doesn't mean it's sustainable indefinitely, nor does it mean, as the Fed will have us believe, that it's like one of those toys where you cram it in, you turn the handle, all of a sudden it pops back out. That's not how it works, but that's what they want us to believe. But the data is really clear here. This thing is going to moderate down. We'll get the CPI next week, but it may be a few more months, and then we might go past the Fed's target. A lot of people don't think that's even possible. You're right, because the Fed says we're looking at the unemployment rate. And when you look at these statistics that we're showing you here, the CPI, it has absolutely no bearing on the, the unemployment has, rate has no bearing on the CPI. It has no relationship whatsoever. So if you're looking at the unemployment rate and thinking consumer prices, you're, I mean, you're completely missing the entire boat here. And that's, you know, the Fed says, as she says, <laughs> we're looking like a jack in a box here. The, the inflation is going to pop right back up for some reason or something or something or other. And there are other people out there who think that, well, that's, that's how the great inflation worked. Well, no, that's not how the great inflation worked at all. What they're misinterpreting is that we had underlying inflation, which you could see on this chart, which gradually builds up and it builds up and it builds up and it doesn't stop building up and it doesn't stop building up. It just continues to go and go and go and accelerate and accelerate. Unlike the supply shock, which is a shock where everything just accelerates and then slowly comes back down. The, the great inflation was a constant source of new money and credit into the economy that kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And I think what people confuse uh, about the great inflation is the supply shock or the oil shocks that, that essentially added a supply shock to the inflation. The oil price, the oil embargo and the oil price increases, that wasn't the inflation. That wasn't the great inflation. In fact, those didn't show up until eight years later. So that's why the CPI looks today a lot like it did in, 1940, in the late 1940s rather than the 1960s heading into the 1970s. Because we don't have the money supply, we don't have the money creation, the constant source of new money and credit that just continues to push prices upward and keep them upward and go further and further and further. Whereas what you said, Steve, we had we had the shock and the shock was so clear. <laughs> Lima beans. Yeah, right. I mean, that's what it was. I think the CEO of I think it was Heinz Ketchup. Um, he's, he, he relayed the story of how they had ketchup but they didn't have packets, right? They, they didn't have the right packaging. After everybody, we used to go out to restaurants and used to use the bottles. Suddenly everybody was home. Well, they had the ketchup to sell, but they had no way to get it to people at home, which caused an enormous price imbalance that once we have those price imbalances, it does take time to filter through. Transitory can mean several years. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And this comes back to those money curves that we also talk about, because you just said that, look, we had this unprecedented amount of money, obviously borrowed, not printed by the government and handed out to people. Plus, there was a lot of lending. And now you start to look at, you know, I love the SLUs report. I know you do, too every quarter. And it tells us so much useful information. And this last one again said, look, we're going to keep probably tightening lending standards through the end of the year, which is the second time this year they've said that. And all that means is if the banks aren't creating money, 
Well, that's a problem when you need money to sustain inflation and growth. And so you start to put all these pieces together and you line them up and it gets real clear. Is inflation going to go straight down like Jay Powell keeps insisting that we have to keep tightening because it's not going down fast enough when he could just say, like you did, hey, you know what? It's coming down. Look over history. It takes some time. It'll be okay. Because what are we still seeing in the news today? Somebody wants pay raises. Look, it just takes time for this to work itself out. But as demand falls, inflation will cool off. Yeah, so that's looking backwards. That's what happened. We're not looking looking backward through the unemployment rate like Mr. Powell is. We're going to look forward here at some forward-looking indications that they're not looking good. As Steve was just describing, they are looking past inflation. They are looking past disinflation. And they are thoroughly deflationary. And I'm talking, of course, about producer prices. Longtime viewers of this channel know I've been talking about producer prices for quite some time. And we got more producer price data, this time out of Europe, which was alarming in a couple senses, a couple, couple facets. Number one, producer prices have fallen for six consecutive months, which you say, okay, that's energy, that's oil. We don't care about energy and oil, even though everybody during the during the quote unquote inflation period said oil and energy are inflation. And now that no, 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 oil and energy is not inflation. But that's okay. The European PPI down six months in a row. It's now down 3.4% year over year, which is a pretty low level, pretty deeply in deflation. But it wasn't just energy. It's not just oil. The core PPI across all of Europe was negative for the third consecutive months. And the last two months are some of the largest declines. They're actually the first and second largest decline since 2009. We're seeing the core PPI in Europe roll over in a way we didn't even see in 2020. The only time we've ever seen something like this out of Europe is in 2008, 2009. So producer prices are already deflationary and it looks like they're about to become even worse deflationary, which means what, Mr. Van Meter? Well, it means the U.S. is coming soon. And that's what I love because, you know, uh, a lot of people don't look at the P PPI here, but you think it's induce if the, if I get the terminal, the one, I know there's variations of it. I think it's the induce one, Jeff. Um, and you overlay that against the consumer price index and you can see it leads it, which it should. This is exactly what should happen. So if producer prices are falling, it's not, it's not just the oil component, but there is the oil component. It's a demand issue. Because producers, they really need to raise their prices right now. They're dealing with inflation too. They've got higher expenses, they got higher labor costs, and their margins are going to get compressed, which we're going to see in the months that come. The stock market won't like it. So do they want to raise prices faster? You bet they do. But they can't because there's no demand. And I think that's something that people are struggling with, Jeff. And, and I want to admit, it took me a while to really get this. The CPI just isn't about prices, which is really kind of what everyone just, well, it's just about the price of a bottle of ketchup. It's about the demand for that bottle of ketchup. Heinz will figure out a way to package it. If it costs a million dollars a bottle and people buy it, they will get it in something and to a store near you. It's the demand side. And then it all comes back to the money side. Without the money, you can't get the demand. And the next thing you know, prices have to come down and could, and I think they could deflate here. I know the money curves are saying that. But I think it's going to happen. Yeah, so that's Europe. And we're talking about the, you know, is it just is it just Europe? Is it just China? Because we've talked about China before, too. There's deep deflation in producer prices in China. Japan, we see deflation developing in, in uh, Japanese producer prices. But so far, as you just mentioned, Steve, U.S. producer prices are only in disinflation. 
So when we look at Europe and China and everywhere else, what that tells us is that, you know, this is a globally synchronized economy. It's just a matter of time before, first of all, this deflation in producer prices becomes deflation in all producer prices around most of the developed world. And then I think more, more importantly, what people are more interested in is it does become deflation in consumer prices. As you can see in the chart I'm showing you here, there is a very good correlation, as Steve just mentioned, between producer prices and consumer prices in Europe, in the United States, and around many places in the world, producer prices lead consumer prices. But as Steve was just saying too, in this case, this supply shock case, the correlation is not as tight as it has been in the recent past. In fact, as in, in a nod to, to central bankers, consumer prices have been stickier than they normally would be. But that doesn't mean that consumer prices aren't going to follow or producer prices. It simply means that producer prices are going into deflation and it will take a little bit longer before consumer prices, the weakening in consumer demand, catches up to where producers are. Because as Steve said, you know, retailers want to squeeze every last dollar that they can out of consumers. And it isn't really until the last minute they realize we got to start cutting back on our price increases or start cutting back prices that they end up thinking the same way as producer prices. It has a lot to do with the inventory cycle, which is hitting producers much harder right now than it is retailers. So it's not as if producer prices have broken the correlation with consumer prices, which you can see clearly. It's just that there's a much wider lag this time as opposed to recent history. Yeah, Jeff, and a, a good way to put this in perspective, you know, um, here in the U.S., everything's made in China. So if you want to know where U.S. consumer prices are going, go look at the PPI for China, which I believe is in deflation. I correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's deflating. And yeah, there's a lag there because, you know, they build something, you know, they, they make the product there. It's got to ship over here, go to the, the warehouse, get to a store, get on the shelf, and someone's got to buy it. So at some point, all this is telling us is, there is a huge lack of demand. It means like a vacuum. And what I think where you're going with this is that at some point, the consumer price index is going to go straight down. And that's not, even though Jay Powell says he wants that, where it's going is not where he wants it to go. And it's going to be a big shock, not just to him, but to a lot of people, because he's going to come back and say, well, but the unemployment rate, which who cares? <laughs> And just to be clear here, you know, let's finish up with this, Steve. To be clear here, we're not saying and we're not expecting that prices are going to go back to where they were in 2020. That's not what happens. And going back to, again, our CPI comparisons in the supply shock, what you see is that consumer prices explode higher during the shock. And then as the rate of increase starts to decline, we reach a sort of new plateau where prices are just they're, they're permanently higher. They've moved, they moved up and they're not going to go back to the way they were. But in the 1946, 47, 48, and 49 case, you get a bit of deflation as that adjustment takes place. So prices don't go back to where they, they, they didn't go back to where they were way back in 46 and 45, but they did start to fall. And when they started to fall, what that showed was a, a real change in demand that led to a really nasty recession in 48 and 49. So if we're following that supply shock case, which I think the producer price numbers are already telling us to expect, we're not saying that prices in the U.S. are going to go back or Europe or anywhere are going to go back to where they were in 2020. But as they start falling a little bit from their peak, we're going to we're going to move it. You know, prices are permanently higher. But that transition from the supply shock to this new plateau of prices 
can be, shall we say, messy. And that's what pr the producer price signal is telling us. The producers are already saying, yeah, this isn't going to be fun. Yeah, that's right, Jeff. And we can actually see prices deflate. I mean, not they're not good. Like you said, they're not going back where they were before the pandemic. Now, does that mean they're all going to stay permanently at the high? No, there's going to be some that dip. And I'm going to tell you why. Because a lot of people don't want to hear this, but there's a simple way to do it. You get rid of your most expensive cost. That's called labor. So if you can't sell stuff and you've got inventory building up and you've got your machines you need to keep running, well, you you have no choice. You get rid of some of your labor and you start cutting your prices to keep the machine running. And that can happen. Now, again, like you said, it doesn't mean prices are going to drop by 50% or 20%, but they could drop maybe 2 3 4%. That would not be uncommon, but it's going to be on the back of the labor market. And that's what I think I'm concerned about here is because the Fed is talking about how great the labor market is. But that's something just like inflation that can turn on a dime. Yeah, that's ultimately deflation, uh, where, wherever it comes or however much it is, ultimately that's where it ends up. It ends up in workers because as you just described, that's what businesses do. Um, what's unique about this period, in addition to being a supply shock case, is that we've seen numerous, numerous accounts, lots of evidence that shows businesses are continuing to hoard their workers because they are right now convinced this is going to be a small, short, shallow downturn, and they don't want to get rid of workers. We got the payroll numbers. Uh, I've talked about that in the previous video, which hours work continue to contract. Hiring rates continue to decline, and they're probably much worse than they're, they're even we're even seeing today because of revisions that can continue to go down and down. So businesses are already making their adjustments. They're already having, producers are having to cut prices. It's you can see the supply shock, the next stage of the supply shock coming, except if you're looking at the unemployment rate. If you want more discussion between me and Steve about the yield curve, check out the video at the link below. And as always, thank you very much for joining me. Huge thank you, Eurodollar University subscribers, and of course, our Eurodollar University members. Until next time, take care.